modesty. Modesty. It's the virtue by which I communicate to others with my body how I want to be related to. I want to preach on this virtue today and three virtues that come from it that are desirable using the first reading and the second reading as reflection material and then on how to acquire it. And so modesty expresses itself in two ways. In the way that I dress, modesty in attire, and the way which I comport myself, modesty in comportment, how I carry myself. Now I'll be focusing more on modesty and comportment and the three virtues that come from there. And the first of those virtues, write it down and use that at your next tea party, is called philotemia. Philotemia. It's Latin for love of honor, but it's more so how people will treat me with honor when they see me. In this first reading, we have two characters whose modesty in their comportment is so supernatural that it causes a man who has normally seen in people immodest behavior to treat these two people with reverence. And so who is that man? One of the key figures in the first book of Samuel is the priest Eli. He's also the judge of Israel, which means that he is the man in charge of the whole nation. The problem with Eli is that his sons are two priests that are quite wicked. And what he sees in those sons is that they take from the sacrifice of the fat that's given, they basically take from the collection, and they have relations with others of the opposite gender outside of the temple. So Eli is accustomed to seeing the worst of human nature and those that he's closest to. So much so that when our first character who has that philotemia comes into the temple, Hannah, and as she prays in the temple with reverence, she prays so fervently for a son that as her prayer comes out, she runs out of breath. There's no more words that can come out of her mouth. And Eli, seeing the wickedness of his sons and being used to this, says, woman, why are you drunk? Just assumes that this is what's going on because of his past exposure. But when Hannah tells Eli that she's been praying to the Lord because she's barren, Eli immediately treats her with a certain reverence, acknowledging this philotemia that is within her. Down the line, as Eli gets older and Hannah gives birth to a son, Samuel, now Samuel is in the temple as we hear today. And he hears the voice of God. He doesn't know it's the voice of God. He thinks it's the voice of Eli. And Eli, recognizing the purity in this boy, doesn't claim him for himself, but points him back to God. He recognizes in the purity, innocence, and this philotemia in Samuel that he has to point him back to God. 
A counterexample to this, how we can be modest in attire but not modest in comportment and not have the philotemia. Whenever I was in the seminary at Notre Dame in New Orleans, me and three other men that were ordained together had a tradition that at the beginning and end of every semester, we would go to a restaurant named Houston's. And Houston's, to us, was known in a place with some of the best old fashions in town and a pineapple-infused ribeye. It was fantastic. And so our last semester there were transitional deacons, which means that we're modest and entire. We're dressed like priests. We have our clerics on. And me, with Houston's offering both that old-fashioned and that pineapple-infused ribeye, I was probably as excited as a clown in a party city or a kid in a candy shop. I wasn't comporting myself with a lot of modesty at that time. So that when some women walked into the lobby, they looked at all of us and they see all these young men, you know, and clerics, and they think, oh, wow, that's really nice. And then they look at me and they said, now that one's not a priest. You know, there was something about the way I was comporting myself that they didn't see a priest. They probably saw someone dressed up for Halloween. And so our modesty and comportment, that philotemia, while we can treat ourselves in a way in which we are immodest and block the Lord, we can also treat ourselves in a way in which others cannot but see the Lord behind us. For a spatial example from that first reading, whenever Hannah gives her son Samuel to God by allowing him to minister in the temple, the first book of Samuel says every time she goes back to the temple annually to offer her sacrifice, she sees her son. And if she were to walk into the temple and see Samuel there, what she would see behind Samuel is the Ark of the Covenant. This is what Philotemia does. That whenever others look at us, they see behind us the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, or God's shadow behind us. And a similar thing happens with Hannah because she prefigures Mary. We see Mary's shadow behind Hannah in the New Testament. But from that philotemia, because we speak with our bodies, actions speak louder than words, but not to the exclusion of words, it leads to our second virtue, veracity. Veracity. We hear from the first book of Samuel at the end of the reading. Samuel grew up, and the Lord was with him, not permitting any word of his to be without effect. Not permitting any word of his to be without effect. Everything that Samuel said came to fruition, which meant that everything that Samuel said was listened to. If we treat ourselves with a modesty and comportment, not only with my body, but with my speech, it means I will be able to enter into more meaningful friendships and dialogues. It means that I'll be more easily understood in everything I'm trying to communicate. It means that when I do try to communicate the gospel, it's received more seriously. And so what are sins then against veracity? 
if I am a person that has to emphasize what I say with foul language, it means I'm probably not using words that have enough force in the first place. And so I have to pull up from the netherworld a bunch of foul things to emphasize my point because I'm not truthful enough in the first place and I don't feel like people hear me. If I'm a person that rambles because, again, I don't feel hurt, it means that perhaps I don't comport myself in a way that people take me seriously enough. Or if I'm a person who gossips and speaks uh, critical things, it means that people probably don't want to hear what I have to say And so when I open my mouth, people are not willing to receive it. Veracity. It comes from comporting myself well modestly and by watching what I say so that when I speak, the words are taken seriously. But as much as a Christian is known for his words and what he speaks because he is a man of the word, Jesus Christ is the word made flesh, the word often remains silent. God speaks to us silently. And so the flowering virtue of modesty and compartment is silence. Silence is that third virtue. And a Christian is more known by the kindness of his silence than the kindness of his words. Because God speaks to us in silence. If I hold myself in silence with a glare of cynicism or a glare of judgment or a glare of criticalness, then I'm probably not communicating the silence of God. Yet the silence of God looks over all creation with a certain tenderness and a certain pity and a certain cherishing. That is the silence that communicates God. A silence that even people will pay attention to if I comport myself in modesty. Now the thing about these virtues, as much as they are desirable, they are equally difficult to acquire. Because if I desire to be modest so that people can take me seriously, listen to what I say, and even receive me in silence, then I probably have this impure desire first. And that is, I desire for people to like me too much. I desire to be impressive. And that's the desire that creates us to be immodest. When I desire a bunch of attention, when I desire to be loud and rambunctious, when I desire to carry myself in a way to where people don't see God, but they see me. And so, to acquire that virtue of modesty, it means that we have to treat it as any other virtue in the Christian life. That if I want to gain my life, I have to lose it. If I want to gain the desire to be respected, the desire to be listened to, and the desire to be seen, then I have to lose those desires to be respected, seen, and listened to. And the way in which we do that is that we forsake the desire to please man and we re-enkindle the desire to please God. We heard in the second reading that our body 
the means by which we are modest and comport ourselves, is a temple of the Lord. And that is an analogy that's not trite. If the body body is a temple of the Lord, imagine it this way. The temple has walls. These are the members of the body. But the temple, at the heart of it, has an altar. The place where sacrifice happens. That without the altar, the temple doesn't exist. It's just a nice, pretty museum. And so, for the body, the temple and the altar is the human heart. And if the human heart does not sacrifice itself into pleasing God, then the body does not comport itself well. The meaning of the temple is lost. And so, in as another counterexample of someone or people who lose faith that they can please God, who lose faith that they can offer their heart to God as a sacrifice and it be received, is Eli's sons, who are the wicked priests. I want to bring us back spatially, as we did with Hannah and Samuel, to this visual of Eli's sons. As I said before, Eli's sons forsake the ability and the faith that they can please God. Because they take the fat that's offered at the sacrifice of the Lord for themselves. They don't give it to God. And because they don't give it to God, they don't believe they can please God. And so what Eli's sons do is that they actually walk outside of the temple instead of Samuel who remains in the temple. And when they walk outside of the temple, the first book of Samuel says, is that at the temple doors is when they solicit relations with the women who come forward to the temple. So that they don't point, God, they don't point these women to God. They point women to themselves. And so, visually, instead of standing in front of the Ark and the Covenant, having the shadow of God's presence, they remain on the outside temple doors to make sure that uh, these women do not approach God. This is what happens when we forsake the idea that I can please God is that we have to please somebody, and so we'll do whatever it takes to find some counterfeit of love. And so, if we desire the virtue of modesty and comportment, because we desire to be taken seriously in our walk of holiness, to be seen in all that we do as a sign of God, to be heard and our words to be taken seriously. We must offer our hearts as a sacrifice because our bodies are the Lord's temple to grow in philotemia, veracity, and silence.